morning. Today uh, we have three scripture readings. Uh, the first is from Psalm 45, verses 10 through 17. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her, those brought to be with her. Led in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. The next reading is from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Sing, daughter Zion, and shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And today's New Testament reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. It's the word of the Lord. So, as I often do when I step into the pulpit, I feel the need to be transparent with you all. Um, when I first encountered this topic and this scripture for today, similar to Neil's response to Psalm 13 last week, in a different way, I recoiled. <laughs> I thought that I was going to end up picking another scripture and a topic entirely. Um, I am having issues with the thing, as I usually do. Um, but let me explain and be frank with you. So my first instinct shied away from speaking about a passage with themes of bringing a young woman in marriage to a man. It's not that the king in the psalm is a bad man. Earlier in the psalm, the speaker calls him a king of righteousness who hates wickedness, of course. But still, I cringe a little when reading of a marriage of a woman to a man with a huge imbalance of power in a time where a woman's autonomy and inherent value were not always cherished. So what can I say? 
I'm a woman under 30 in the 21st century. I'm a woman in ministry. I'm a woman with a lot of privilege. And yet I have witnessed my sisters discarded by society and by the church time and time again. So when I come to a passage that brings its own understandings of gender, of marriage, I'm inclined to handle it very carefully. Stay with me. I promise I'm not going to be heretical. At least that's not my aim. Like Neil said last week, I'm not trying to solve the psalm. I'm not discarding this passage. Quite the opposite. I just want to be transparent about my own bias and perspective. Psalm 45 is a wedding song. Based on its contents, it seems to be the marriage of a king to a foreign bride. And it could possibly have been uh, could possibly have been written about the marriage of King Ahab to Jezebel, or some have speculated even about King David's marriage. As you may have already guessed, over time, the church began to see allusions and apply parallels from this psalm to the image of Christ and the church, the bride of Christ and her bridegroom. So when our selected reading for today starts, either the speaker who may be like a best man type figure um, or someone who could have been like the queen consort in this situation, addresses the bride in verse 10 and says, Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your lord. In the ancient Near East, any bride, even a foreign queen, would have been expected to come under her husband's family and authority upon marriage. Thank you, James. He's working on fixing that for me. So as I have been encountering this psalm in recent weeks, I have found myself having a familiar experience with scripture, and perhaps you can relate. I read a passage. I read this passage. I reread it. I start looking for the meaning or what I want to take away from it. But then I remember, oh, yeah, let me read it in context. Let me look for some history and for some important details. But then I don't like the context. <laughs> or it's unfamiliar, complex, seems like too much to take in. I think I got it working now. Andrew originally titled this message, Embracing Our Daughterhood. So although I didn't know exactly how he planned to preach this sermon, this gave me some clues. I began to consider that maybe there is more here than meets the eye. Maybe a passage full of ancient Near Eastern marriage and gender values can actually empower women and men, all of us, as spiritual daughters. So that's the direction we're going this morning. You may have a different reaction to this psalm than I did, um, but what I can bet is that if you haven't already, you will come across something in Scripture that makes you uncomfortable. And I think it's really important that we practice sitting with this discomfort and talking about it in community. So my hope is that my wrestling will encourage you as you engage with some of your own. Again, taking a page out of Neil's book in his approach to Psalm 13, I'm not going to tell you how to read Psalm 45, but I do hope to share with you some takeaways that I have had as I read it, read other passages of scripture, and done some outside research. Talk to God about it a little bit. I want to take you through my conversation with Psalm 45 in the form of questions for God. One, 
God, what does it mean to be a daughter, and specifically to be your daughter? Second question, God, daughters have not always been treated the way you intended, so what do we do with this wrestling? And three, God, do you, how do you speak to us in Psalm 45 in light of all of these things? So first, what does it mean to be a daughter? Early in my research, I looked for the topic of spiritual daughterhood. Not a ton out there, if you're, if you're not surprised, but um, it, there is a fascinating article with uh, Christians for Biblical Equality International. Woo, good organization. We like them. Um, Beulah Wood wrote an article called The Delight of Daughters, A Theology of Daughterhood. So Wood gives us a primer on the theology of daughterhood and what it means for all of us, regardless of gender. She writes, feminist theologians have commented on the texts of terror and abuse of daughters in the Old Testament. Daughters were at times traded like commodities in marriage. Family law allowed a father to speak for a daughter or to discount her decisions. Sons inherited the family land and carried on the family line. In light of such negative stories and laws, should we conclude that being a daughter is a negative? This study draws attention instead to a high view of daughterhood in the kingdom of God, where God considers daughters a great treasure. The New Testament points to spiritual daughterhood as well as sonship as the passport to the heights of acceptance in the kingdom of God. This research on this topic of spiritual daughterhood all throughout scripture started to open my mind to what God has to say about daughters and how it might actually be a really good thing for us to embrace this identity as spiritual daughters. In scripture, we see plenty of examples of sin and following a destructive path that goes against God's design for human flourishing. This includes how daughters and women in general were devalued and harmed in biblical narratives and we see that these patterns are carried on today, inside and outside of the church. But in the example of Jesus, we see that he takes a different countercultural approach in his relationships with women. Jesus speaks directly with women when it is considered inappropriate. Jesus heals a woman whose disease would have made him ritually unclean. And I wanted to highlight that when Jesus confirms healing upon this woman, in Luke 8, who has been suffering from 12 years of bleeding, he affirms her in calling her daughter and telling her to go in peace. In that same scene, Jairus, if you recall, came first and was begging for the healing of his own daughter. Just like Jairus's daughter has an advocate, so does this suffering woman as a spiritual daughter. Eula Wood argues in her report but there's evidence that spiritual daughterhood is just as important as the idea of spiritual sonship. In a note that corrects directly with our passage for today, here's what she had to say about uh, daughterhood of God's people, Israel. It's kind of a long one, but just stay with me. Hebrew parents valued daughters so much that the idiom daughter of Zion developed. It reflects a double metaphor in which a city was personified as a woman, and in addition, the people of the city were, as a group, called her daughter. 
the two epithets, daughter of Zion and daughter of Jerusalem, occur as alternate names for Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem, connoting them with favor. This suggests that God and the scripture writer saw daughter as a metaphor for someone who is loved. If so, we may assume that the label grew from the way Hebrew families appreciated their daughters so much that when God wanted to say he cared about his people, God said that they were like daughters. Sometimes there were negatives around these two phrases, but at their best, they point to positive examples, such as those found in Zephaniah, um, like our passage for today and Zechariah. So these idioms, which are repeated throughout the Old Testament, um, you can look at some of the references on the screen behind me, were applicable to women and men as God's chosen people. We can all proclaim that we are daughters and sons of God, chosen and dearly loved. So I can know these truths deep down in my soul, yet I still struggle and I still wrestle with God over these issues and over, and over this topic. I ask, Lord, how do we reclaim and embrace our identity as daughters when your word has so much evidence of their suffering? In the earlier quote from Beulah Wood, you may have heard me mention the term texts of terror. This is a term that is most well known from scholar Phyllis Tribble's work. She has a book by the same name. But in her introduction, I wanted to highlight this quote. She says, if art imitates life, scripture likewise reflects it in both holiness and horror. Reflections enable themselves, reflections themselves, excuse me, neither mandate nor manufacture change. Yet by enabling insight, they may inspire repentance. In other words, Sad stories may yield new beginnings. I want to repeat those last sentences one more time. Reflections themselves neither mandate nor manufacture change, yet by enabling insight, they may inspire repentance. In other words, sad stories may yield new beginnings. As I process Woods and Tribble's wisdom and the work that they've done to bring women's stories to light in Scripture, I'm once again reckoning with the hardships that women endured in scripture and still face today. And as I meditate on God's love for daughters, I'm hopeful. I wonder and I ask God, how can the telling of terrible stories or our discomfort with them promote renewal and healing in this area? How can it enable each of us to boldly live and take on the identity as daughters of God? We do feel this inner conflict, at least I do. And if you don't feel it about this topic, you'll feel it about something else. We do feel an inner conflict in wrestling, but there is indeed hope. Beulah Wood encourages her readers that a theology of daughterhood gives us a framework to lament. And we find this in scripture as well. Wood quotes Lamentations as an example from chapter one. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate, her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she's in bitter anguish. This is why I weep 
and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. And further, my children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. Listen, all you peoples, look on my suffering. My young men and young women have gone into exile. Scripture ignores neither the suffering faced by humanity nor the particular suffering faced by daughters, by women. The stories of unnamed women, terrible violence and injustice can be too much for me to bear sometimes. And for some people, for some of us, those stories may speak too close to home. Yet scripture does not pretend that these stories didn't happen or that uh, or aren't possible. It doesn't leave us without permission to lament and to question God. We can be assured that writers and characters in God's word made a healthy model, a healthy life of lament and protest before the Lord. Knowing God's great love for us, we can do the same. Whether it's Psalm 45 or any passage that gives you pause, I believe the Spirit can still minister to us in our confusion and in our doubt. So all this being said, God, how can you still speak to us in Psalm 45? If we are to embrace our daughterhood, how do we do this knowing what we know about the brokenness of your world, about how daughters have not been named and treated as you designed and desired? Is it possible for our daughterhood, as shown in this text, to be good? Historian and activist Grace Lee Boggs said, history is not the past, it's the stories we tell about the past. I would add, I think, that history is the facts and stories of the past in conversation with the stories we tell about those stories. <laughs> right? A little complicated, but that's how my mind works. Similarly, our conversation with scripture is influenced by the history and the story of the passage. It's the context in which that passage was written and what it might have meant to the writer or to the hearers and how God spoke to and through them. Scripture is also about how God is speaking to us here and now. And perhaps in light of all of that, we can hear from Psalm 45 what it might mean to be God's daughters. And for our purposes as followers of Christ, we can ask ourselves, how do we read Psalm 45 in light of Jesus living incarnationally among us, in him dying on the cross and rising to life to defeat death for all time? Psalm 45 is scripture. I want to repeat that. I'm not tossing it out. It's a wedding song. It celebrates the coming together of a royal couple. In his commentary, John Golden Gay notes, in the post-monarchic period, the psalm came to be interpreted allegorically of the Messiah and his bride, the people of God. And it may also have been used for ordinary couples who on the occasion of their wedding became king and queen for a day. So in this theology and understanding of God's love for us, it can be 
you know, we can understand that even an imperfect picture, such as one presented in Psalm 45, could give us insight into Jesus's relationship with the church in that beautiful image of the bridegroom, of, bridegroom and the bride of Christ. In fact, the writer of Hebrews was pretty confident of this. As you heard Matt read earlier, this is a snippet of chapter one that directly quotes Psalm 45. Hebrews 1, 8 through 9. But about the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So this snippet, possibly the best man or just the poet who ever composed this psalm, says about the bridegroom in Psalm 45, he's lauding him and talking about all of his accomplishments as a just and righteous king, his military might, all the good things that we would find important in a king in those days. Translators, of course, disagree about all the details, obviously, but um, it was really common for kings at this time to be given divine-like names or labels. And, the rule, and their rule, excuse me, was often viewed as ordained by God. So as the Spirit moved through the church, through the authors of our text, this image in Psalm 45 looked like a pretty good depiction of Jesus. At the beginning of the book of Hebrews, as we read, the author is building a case of how Jesus is better than any human, earthly or heavenly person or thing. Jesus is better than the angels. And further in Hebrews, Jesus is better than Moses, who led the Israelites out of Egypt. And Jesus is better than the high priest who interceded between the people and God. But in case you were wondering, these truths did not end my wrestling with this text. Being a daughter of God is my greatest desire. And I was still fighting Jesus on this. Lord, so many women were forgotten and harmed in so many ways during this time, and they still are today. I can believe that you are better, Jesus. But this legacy of harm and abuse, not so much. And I think I'll continue to wrestle with some of these images that are presented in scripture. And I do hope that this gives you permission to continue to do that in your walk with God. But as I sat and realized this truth that Jesus was better, even though it was hard for me to accept in the image, this is what I wondered that the Spirit might be saying to me. Here's what I think the Spirit was trying to communicate. I am the true and better king. Many kings were named and enthroned and given titles of righteousness and justice. Many have done evil, and some have truly done good. But I am better. I call all of my daughters, men, women, and everyone, to humble submission. Not because I relish in wielding harmful power and control over you, but because I love you. Marriages, kingdoms, and people who are meant to reflect my beauty often fail, but I never will.
So perhaps it's possible for us to look at a text with broken symbols and an imperfect picture of who Jesus really is. And maybe we can see a glimmer of the truth that was intended from the beginning. Daughters are created, chosen, and beloved by God. So much that God wants that love to be lavished on each and every person. Just as we all enjoy the sonship of God, inheriting God's everlasting life, welcomed into God's family, we are also tenderly loved and cared for by a king who is trustworthy and who is good. When we come to Christ as his people, we can, we can trust that we can actually leave our people. Whatever our story of shame and brokenness may be, we will be embraced with love and given royal status in the kingdom of God. May it be so in each of our lives. Amen. This morning we sang about 